Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Welcome back to another episode of The Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Parenthetical. A bud. We really hope you do. We really hope you do. We would love it if you did, actually. And you sent us an email. Saying that us, you are. Gave us some feedback on what you're thinking. Yep. Engage the conversation. That's what science is all about. Contrary to popular belief, it's meant to bring people together, not divide us. Nice. Love that perspective. <laughs> that was a long uh, parenthetical. We're still but... in it. We haven't closed it. <laughs> <laughs> closed. Oh, you're closing it yeah, now? I'm closing okay. it now. Okay, closing it now. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we have now a, a, a kind of precedent for going into the footnotes. We did that on a couple episodes. So. Yeah. Just yeah, keep that in mind if you want to. Yeah, next time. Yeah, if you want to go through it at any point in the episode. Yeah, if you want keep to drop the... a footnote. Yeah, keep the parenthetical and the subtitle down. Yep. Yeah, it's probably a character limit. It's an editor's choice yeah. for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, so today <laughs> we yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm okay. So <laughs> we are. <laughs> we never plan this out of like who's going to go and say what. Okay. Uh, so we're back into talking about uh, evidence-based treatment, as is the kind of topic of this season. And in the past few episodes, we've really been sort of outlining what standardization of evidence-based treatment looks like, if there is to be any. And for therapists working with a range of presentations, how are they to make sense of, you know, kind of the three pillars of evidence-based treatment? What is, you know, suitable to the client uh, as, you know, determined by them themselves what is within the therapist's own experience and expertise relative to the research, and then what about the experience and context of the actual treatment setting. Yep. So we're turning our attention now to a little bit more of an applied uh, article uh, from the Journal of Infant, Child, and Adolescent Psychotherapy, um, which is a Rutledge publication um, entitled An Integrated Analysis of Clinical Practices that Treat Early Relational Trauma from Perez and Sundheim in 2015. So this article is sort of overviewing uh, the treatment uh, perspectives that have been shown to have a high degree of, of efficacy in working with early relational trauma, which, you know, that's sort of a, a problem diagnosis or uh, presentation for a lot of EBTs, um, mm. the research is pretty mixed on on what uh, modalities and their theoretical paradigms are best, quote unquote, at working mm -hmm. with these presentations. And so this is a little bit of a sort of integrated um, literature review, looking at what uh, sort of a holistic conceptualization of early relational trauma looks like, and then it gives an actual um, case presentation in the second half of the article. Mm -hmm. So, from the perspective of play therapy, yes, yeah. play therapy, which has been shown to be highly effective in working with early relational trauma. So, Caleb, first thoughts. What stood out to you? First thoughts. Well, I think my my gut in this article was feeling very supported by the amount of 
integration that they were bringing to the table of how they're understanding early relational trauma and like the focusing in on what's important with early relational trauma. Mm-hmm. And they go through, they actually give this beautiful kind of um, lit review from Freud to Winnicott to Anna Freud to Alan Shore uh-huh. to uh modern even they reference Siegel at one point like they're they're tracking through identifying what is what really what is trauma mm-hmm. and what's the core issue that we we ought to be focusing in on from attachment theory and neuroscience and a psychoanalytic perspective yeah what's kind of the thing to zone in on and they come up with well really this is all a a focus on affect regulation. Yes. And I, I feel very supported in that. I think when we, when I just hear the words early relational trauma, I'm usually thinking either in a kid or an adult that there's a lot of probably chaotic strategies appearing. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, localizing it down to at the core of it, it's an affect regulation disorder. Disorder. Yeah. That feels very grounding to me. Yeah. Of no matter what you're really looking at. Yeah. And you know, um, Daniel Phillips from affect regulation theory would say that you look at any diagnosis in the DSM, uh, you're going to see that their origin is actually in in affect regulation. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and but I'd say like spin up a little bit on EBTs, mm-hmm. like how little some evidence based therapies are tapping into the transformational power of emotion and affect. Yes, particularly and, implicit, yeah. Yeah, and the relationship between the therapist and the client in moderating yeah. and Regulating. attuning yeah, to yeah. that affect. Yes, um, so that's a curious position for the sort of, you know, the, the scientific community that's validating these evidence-based therapies is if our conceptualization is that they're all about affect dysregulation, all these disorders, how is it that so few of our treatment modalities actually focus and hold in center affect regulation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, it may be that we're just, because we're coming off of a weekend of training somatic integration and processing, that might be why my brain is going this way, but it's, it's a, it's an, such a emphasis that we have on case conceptualization as a part of effective therapy Mm -hmm. and i think what we've been kind of exploring is the the standardization of evidence-based treatments in being very intervention based Mm -hmm. is just going to dehumanize or objectify the client in some way yeah decontextualize them yes take them out of their subjectivity into objective yeah we even used the phrase one time colonialize their experience Mm, to try to make sense of it in the way that we know rather than to understand and attune to the way they're experiencing the world. Yeah. And I think this article, and I love that they use a play therapy example. Uh, we talk about this here at Beyond sometimes. Of I try to keep at least a couple kids on my caseload at all times mm. because it really keeps me in tune with, when I'm interacting with an adult, Like I can become overly um, emphasized on the explicit articulation of what we're doing yeah but working with kids that you're really tapping into a deeper level of meaning yeah and i think our evidence-based therapies need to 
pay attention to the deeper levels of meaning that are sub-symbolic. Yeah. Um, even, even when we're working with adults. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like, yeah. like, I love that they're including a, a, a case of a three-year-old because I think it could even get this aversive reaction from readers to say, well, uh, okay, it's a three-year-old. There's like, not... That's really not going to do anything when I'm working with a 40-year-old with early relational trauma. Yeah. And it's like, well, hold on now, because that 40-year-old is using the fundamental templates yes. of attachment that they learned when they were three, even before Experiencing yeah. this early relational trauma. Yeah, yeah. and that, that in therapy with the adult is what yeah. you're still wanting to tap into. Yeah, and I think our how we handle the lit review of the article will kind of flesh some of that mm-hmm. out. So if you are one of if you are listening to the episode and you're thinking, well, if they're talking about a case study with a three year old, I don't really have much to take from this because I don't work with anybody less than twenty five. Yeah. Well, those and this is again central to our conceptualization as well, that every later occurring disorder or presentation has its origins in the early maturational environment that we don't have a disorder that's not tethered to something going on early in our, you know, emotional learnings uh, that gave Mm -hmm. us this predisposition or set us up to be tipped over in this way later Mm -hmm. in life. Um, Yeah. yeah. This, this article feels like the, um, the opposite end of the pendulum where we did that um, somatic uh, eco-psychological article um, around um, how our higher, well, there's the eco-psychology one, and then there's also the higher mental capacities are influenced by lower mental um, mm-hmm. uh, functions, and our experience of the physical world influences our experience of the psychological mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. This one, and that's core, like that, that's a core template. This article, I think, brings in the conversation of, now it's not just objects, but now it's relational experiences mm. our early life relational experiences then are the shaping blocks of how we come to experience relationships later on in life and the yes. strategies we use and that this is sort of like a a triangulation from that article mm-hmm. to now and then into um, what is evidence-based and yeah why does it matter yeah and i i kind of want to go back even on that again because there are such meaningful implications for what you just said Hmm. that the way we're making sense of the field of psychotherapy is that you know it's really about these building blocks of you know even sensory motor stimuli recognition Hmm. you know you can complexify that as much as you want in that well this is schizophrenia or some you know something Mm -hmm. with um distortions of of um, delusions or, or some type of hallucination that seems purely mental in its origin but that mm-hmm. it's actually still just about the same exact things we're actually still going back to the very beginning with how we learn to see ourselves and others mm-hmm. in the world and make yeah. meaning of the present moment in the yeah. past oh yeah oh yeah make present meaning Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. based on the past and yep. future anticipations. Yep. Beautiful. Well, let's jump in. Let's let's look at because they the first section and I think what we decided is we're just going to kind of go header by header. Yeah. Give kind of an overview of their perspective of mm-hmm. treating early relational trauma, 
um, and then jump into their case. Yeah, so they do talk about, and this is getting into this, the, the lit review here, of talking about what kind of early relational trauma we're talking about. Because this article is focused on what the authors see to be one of the more detrimental forms of early relational trauma, which is the uh, loss of an attachment figure, whether through death or through uh, even just abdication of care. So for yeah. whatever reason, the developing child is disconnected from their first attachment figures. Yeah. And therefore, you know, suspended in their developmental process that they were working towards with the synchronization between their brain systems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. They uh, cite George and Solomon um, yeah. around the, the caregiving being suspended or disabled. Yes, and I love their next point there, that the central argument is that a psychoneurobiological approach, which draws from psychoanalytic, attachment, and neuropsychological contributions, presents an integrated way of understanding and treating relational trauma and multiple facets of loss. So that's mm -hmm. them setting up essentially their entire lit review of what it's going to center around as yeah. they've identified in the literature, a psychoneurobiological approach is going to be more holistic in its conceptualization of early relational trauma and what to do with it in therapy. Yes. Yeah. So psychoanalytic and attachment theory. That's the first header. That's for it. Those listening along. So kind of, to me, what stands out in this first section is that they're tracing um, the kind of historicity of attachment theory mm -hmm. from Freud, um, who is looking at the baby's original helplessness and into Winnicott, who's looking at the unthinkable anxiety of where caretakers begin to ex ex lack the ability to give, um, not in their own like, um, uh, ab like ability as in like they're not capable, but just like in the environment gives way to where there's a helplessness in the child mm -hmm. and they have to then instigate some strategy to mitigate that. Yeah, I um, love the language that they give when the maternal environment cannot hold the baby in a mm -hmm. reliable way. The baby receives a traumatic communication, producing anxiety and withdrawal in reaction to the danger of losing the love object. Mm -hmm. That's very Winnicottian. Mm -hmm. um, but you know what that's saying is that in, in the case of an early relational trauma where the attachment figure and the, 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 the uh, relationship to the infant is under threat, that that really represents, I mean, a paramount threat mm. to the developing infant. Yeah. That's why it's unthinkable anxiety. It's like, if you, if you are not here, I will die. Yeah. And I don't know how to tolerate that. I can't tolerate that. My, my physiological organization as a mammal is predicated on your presence in my life. Mm -hmm. So without you, I will cease to exist. Yeah. Which, and, and I... I'm going to do this probably a million times in this episode just because I can't help it. But the idea that like as a therapist, it being paramount that I, I embody to some degree what it's like to experience that unthinkable anxiety with my client in whatever way that experience is fleshed out. So like I think of like, there's a lot of needs that can go unmet that produce this unthinkable anxiety in yeah. infancy. And I think like, you know, I, I, my brain is going to older adults of like, it can feel like an unthinkable anxiety for someone to say no. 
And that's not some like absurd thing. That has very fundamental connections. All the way back. All the way back. And for me as a clinician to not to not understand and attune to that. Yeah. Say it, more about what you see in the challenge for somebody to say no and how you could get back to that early relational environment with just a simple, you know, I say simple. But, yeah. Well, yeah. well, my brain goes to the client that says like, well, I know if someone says no to me, like it, it like I know I'll be okay. It's like, yeah, uh, I get that. Well, like you your know, brain your knows, yeah. like you have a knowledge that you'll be okay, yeah. but you don't have an experiential understanding that you'll be okay. Yeah. And as a therapist looking from a psycho neurobiological perspective, that no I, is rejection. No is rejection and no is life threat. Yes. Because if, if there's a no, there's a lack of need and I'm utterly dependent mm-hmm. as an infant. And so your brain is associating into these life threat templates. Yeah. And as a clinician, like I, I want to help the client understand that that's normal. Yeah. It's not just some, and this feels like it's back to memory reconsolidation of I don't want to reprioritize a strategy away from that fear circuitry. Mm-hmm. I want to tap into the fear circuitry and get some reconsolidation on what no means and what learned yes. experiences can be. Yes, and you're right in line with where, I mean, the article goes, is that if we're talking about an affect regulation disorder, which is just as you kind of named there, that a no would signal a degree of threat internally mm-hmm. that is intolerable and thus unable to be regulated because it came from an interpersonal dynamic. So you've got a really dangerous combination of rejection from the only source that you actually need Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, to feel co-regulated. So Mm -hmm. now the mammal is completely alone and already feeling rejected. Shame is right next to it. After shame, we get all kinds of reactions, Mm -hmm. attack self, attack other, withdrawal. Um, So in, in that, it really still is about affect. Mm. The reason the no is is so dangerous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I love how they um, they mention Shore and Shore. They actually mm. quote Shore and Shore of saying the cl- the current clinical focus of how affect affective bodily based processes are non consciously interactively regulated has shifted attachment theory to a regulation theory. It's mm-hmm. looking at how when we're talking of early relational trauma, what we're, what we're not talking about is like the, just the caregiver. Mm-hmm. We're not looking to villainize the caregiver. What we're looking at is the impact of the environment, caregiver included, yeah, the relationship. on the infant's ability to regulate affect. And not, not oh, I was gonna, where are you going? <laughs> That was so funny. Yeah, We've, I was gonna say, and not just in that moment. Yeah, like not just regulate affect right where the rupture happened. But again, kind of, uh, we're coming to this quote later on, so I'll try not to get too ahead of us. But Trevarthan, Colin Trevarthan, talks about how what that one moment of misattunement could represent is a disconnect of uh, psychobiological processes that are contingent on a mature brain regulating a developing brain. Mm -hmm. So that when we look at affect dysregulation, we don't just see one moment where, oh yeah, that was just a simple moment where mom and baby went a different way. It was, this could actually represent a long sequence of events that means this child is now specialized in their physiological and psychological development to favor fear 
mm. and arousal as opposed to regulation and rest. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say it. regulation is also not just a uh, quelling of energy. Right. Because they also go on to quote the the dissociation or the... Um, uh, Both hyper or hypo arousal. Yeah. yeah. The hypo arousal experience is as much a an attachment strategy as hyper arousal. What did you think about that? I... I love it. I love well, it so much. I don't feel like even in modern, like not, not to say 2015 isn't modern, but I feel like a lot of people don't talk like that. No. Like attaching dissociation that early on in uh, early relational trauma. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and yeah, and I also think of like how um, modern EBTs can sometimes look for can you talk about something without getting overwhelmed by affect and that being almost like a marker of health yeah. and that that feels grossly inaccurate to what we know of modern neurobiological health. Yeah. Like your system needs affect and it needs to show coherent emotions. I was just going to gonna bring up coherence because <laughs> I was just going to bring up, bring up coherence because you know, in affect regulation theory, they talk about it's not actually the presence of dysregulation that is a signifier of anything. It's how quickly you can return to regulation mm -hmm. and how quickly and how congruent that return is with reality. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like that's the next. So if we're talking about why early relational trauma even matters, like because why would we talk about that? <laughs> well, yeah, and we used to have stories, like cultural stories of children are resilient. Yeah. So like really it doesn't matter. Right. They bounce back. They, they're reflexive. Yeah. They're going to do great. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you just are, get them grazed. Yeah, just get them through, get them a good job. Yeah. They'll be fine. But then we have all of these, the ACEs studies, these early relational inventories that are saying like, oh my God, there's a lot of health implications, both mental and physical from early relational life. Yeah, Men mental, physical, and I know you're including this, but just to make it explicit, and interpersonal. Oh yeah, yeah. That that's really where the consequences show themselves. Yes, yeah. Well, and, and that if, if that's true, then like why is relation the early relationship so important? And I think that's the next se section they go to of the attachment relationship and its regulatory function. Yeah. Um, I imagine if listeners have listened to some of our other um, episodes, especially the Alan Shore Interpersonal Neurobiology of Intersubjectivity. And call back to Crittenden as well. And call back to Crittenden. Gotta get it, yeah. To, yeah. Uh, uh, listeners will be very inundated with the idea that attunement in relationships where there is a sharing of emotional weight is like kind of a metaphor to mm -hmm. use that that is what allows a system to disperse or release its emotional energy yeah, and regulate or co-regulate. Yeah. Um, and, and they focus specifically on the overactivation of fear in the absence mm -hmm. of co-regulation. Yeah, and I, they frame this in basing our need for regulation in even young children having an expectation that their primary caregivers will be available in times of stress and danger, that this unconscious sense of when I am dysregulated, I look to my parent, mm -hmm. that that's built in 
Mm-hmm. And so if that process is threatened or disconnected, that that really represents then again, that kind of worst case scenario mm-hmm. for the developing child. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like conceptualizing the life of the infant child is mm. like, there's threats to infants that are not threats to adults, but the adult brain is using those early templates to form what they see as threatening in their environment. Yeah. So that's where you can get some overactivation of fear circuitry in an adult because of early, early life relational experiences. Yes. And that is really the representation to me of why early relational traumas matter so much. It's not a simple trauma in that it had one action and effect sequence. It has a compounding effect. And mm-hmm. I'm just going to read like straight up from what they said because I love these last couple sentences. They say, all at once, they lose the benefits of the attachment relationship and psychobiological attunement and homeostatic regulation that should serve to reduce their fear. Instead, the lack of caregiver regulation heightens fear and leads to spiraling disorganization. Such persistent stress undermines autonomic homeostasis and physiological regulation Mm. and produces long-term changes in young children's biological stress response systems. That tethering to, it's not just the abdication of care that's the trauma. It's that in that loss, they lost their one figure for Mm. psychobiological regulation. Yeah. Yes. And I... I love when we get to the case example, I want to come back to this idea, but I'll just give the spoiler spoiler alert now that that the human mammalian organism can recover from loss. It's not that you have to get the object or the attachment, um, the caregiver back. Are you going to say it's about the environment? I'm going to say it's about can my body engage its natural healing emotions Hmm. can my humanness express itself and release the grief the panic the rage of loss Hmm. to then regulate yeah otherwise i will have to disformulate my mind to hold the fact that i have to be fearful of losing another yeah and that's that spiraling disorganization as they call it yes yeah and the case that they they talk about that the child doesn't get the mom back. Spoiler. The, the, but the child does shift and reorganize. They talk yeah. about the reorganization of the child's world to then engage other attachment experiences like pre, uh, uh, daycare and um, therapy, the therapy yeah. in more um, secure ways. Not, not instigating trouble, not... Yelling, screaming, kicking, yeah. inability to be soothed. Using these projective yes. sort of strategies. Yeah. 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 Anything else in that section? I guess just saying that the attachment relationships that we have in life is like super important. <laughs> Someone say paramount. Someone say crucial. <laughs> <laughs> and inescapable. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No matter what happens, we're always going back. Yeah. 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 Which I think goes to the next section of mm. uh, brain development and this idea of early psychobiological regulation. And we've kind of already tapped into it with the fear circuitry. Like our anticipatory networks will be dependent upon the resolution or unresolution of past experiences. Mm-hmm. And they talk about the HPA access, the hypothalamus. Th- th- hypo- thala- 
thalamic, yeah. pituitary adrenal access, and it is it, its crucial role in moderating stress responses. And without secure attunement and co-regulation, the overactivation of that will literally shift the neural architecture of the brain. And that's not just like a just in childhood thing. Right. That's like a that's what you build yeah. your scaffolding on later on in life. And the reason we, you know, the reason to talk about childhood in this way to me, like Bruce Perry's neurosequential model psychotherapeutics talks about in these sensitive stages of growth, if that pairing is made between affect dysregulation and overactivation of our fear circuitry in the absence of secure attunement, then that is the pairing that's going to be, you know, be built on top of mm -hmm. the brain can only develop on itself. Mm -hmm. So as we continue to experience this, you know, pro symptom uh, belief structure implicitly that no one's going to be there for me. I need to be afraid. See, I told you no one's going to be there for me. So I need to be afraid. See, I told you no one's going to be there for me. So I need to be afraid. Yeah. The more we do that, the more our physiology becomes, shaped by that process yeah. and therefore you know incapable of moving relatively uh away from that pairing yeah. without major new emotional learnings yeah well and my brain goes to like a client that um i had who um had some early relational trauma a teenage uh girl and uh selectively mute and socially anxious to the point of being reclusive um and one of the main contributions of successful therapy was polyvagal theory, safe and sound protocol mm -hmm. that literally helped retune her middle ear muscle yeah. to be open to hearing pro-social sounds and prosody because her system had been in, in, and scaffolded into this fear-dependent state that she couldn't even hear bids for connection. And I say that like she couldn't even hear. I'm sure she could to some degree but it was seriously inhibiting well i think yeah like what that what the polyvagal theory states is that the bids were made but the way they were interpreted yeah was to refuel the fear response it was state dependent yeah. in that fear state yes so it was coming across as words that actually pointed out how unsafe I really am. Yeah. Instead of saying like, oh no, this person's trying to connect with me. I can soften, apply the vagal break and connect. Mm -hmm. No, it was saying you need more fuel on this fire. Yeah. Be more afraid. Yeah. You're in more danger than you thought. Yes. Which like, I'm sure if you're a clinician and you're listening, you have had this moment where you're like, I don't know what else to say or how to say it. Like I am being as empathetic and caring as possible. Putting all the bids out there that I possibly can. Yes. And, and I think the temptation, the way the field has sometimes referred to that is, what well, a treatment-resistant client. Uh, and it, it, you can make sense of that from some EBTs. Like, this is the evidence-based treatment. I just don't know if they're going to get better. Maybe we have to do some maintenance work and just try to find okay enough yeah. <clears throat> um, quality of life. But it's like that that misses such a huge chunk of the human, which is to say that there are reasons that system is doing what it's doing. And from a psychobiological perspective, we can work with that. We yes. can make sense of that. We can see how the current state is dependent on life experiences. They, they even uh, quote a series of authors um, by saying, the growth of the brain is largely experience dependent. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I think like we tout that so often of like there is brain development, but then the specialization and organization of the brain is experience dependent. And mm-hmm. that is like crucial to understand mm-hmm. when working with these early relational traumas. Yeah. And I, just having referenced it earlier, I want to bring an explicit note to it. This is the sentence from Colin Trevartan that intrinsic regulators of early brain growth are adapted to be coupled via emotional communication with the adult brain. Mm -hmm. So really what that highlights to me, and I wish I had that just like memorized or maybe even tattooed because I say it so often, um, but not in such beautiful language that evolutionarily our systems have developed biologically to be dependent from an immature brain to a mature brain so that the immature brain would mature via synchronization with the unconscious emotional processes of the adult brain yeah well that's like that's the cheat code of life that we could go (laughs) i don't have to relearn everything my ancestors learned I can pick up to some degree where they're leaving off and develop more. That's ideally. Right. um, But then that's... In order to get that cheat code, though, you have to have synchronization with an adult brain. Yes. To pick up that code at Mm -hmm. all. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm. Mm. It's a beautiful point. I I do want to read... a small point where they quote Shore. I guess I'm just a Shore fanboy. Um, I'll get that tattooed on me. Um, (laughs) Where they say, in essence, young children who experience early relational trauma operate within the right brain without the cognitive maturity to reflect upon or understand their early experiences. For that reason, they are unable to self-regulate negative states or discuss the trauma often resulting in aberrant behaviors not easily expressed symbolically. Mm. Symbolically meaning linguistically or explicitly. So when you think of like the children, it's very easy to, the children or just children in general, um, it's very easy to see that they will take unregulated affect and project it or try to find regulation Mm through putting it on some other situation and find some sort of mastery or regulation or whatnot. And I think it's like this interesting subscript in human diagnosis that we all kind of realize things like addictions and uh, disorders are these modes of trying to finish unfinished, unfinished business. But in our therapies, our, our actual interventions and evidence-based treatments that kind of goes on mm. unsaid and sometimes not even integrated into the treatment plan. Totally. Like this is a, this is trying to project and finish business of um, unregulated affect from the past. It's yeah. Like, that's I've, absolutely. I've never seen that in right. a treatment plan. <laughs> never once. Never I've once. That. Yeah. <clears throat> this reminds me of our conversations around the, the first problem. Do you remember us talking mm. about this? Yeah. Yeah. Like that, that's really what, we're doing so often is trying out strategies in the present to travel back in time. Mm-hmm. There's such wish in that, but we don't, we're not conscious of that mm-hmm. as a process we're actually enacting. Mm-hmm. We're just responding. Yeah. But it's really, you know, 10 layers removed. Yes. Yeah. I think of 
um, we'll talk about this in the episodes we have planned for the summer months of um, around some neuroscientific articles, but the idea of the world of meaning and experience made before you're consciously aware of something is a is just such a strong indicator to me that your brain is always trying to get the most out of the moment. Mm. So if in the present I can fix something here and there in the past, my brain's going to try to do that. Absolutely. And it has the biological capacities to do that with some of our unconscious systems. Associative processes. Yeah, mm-hmm. and just the way memory works in general. And I, that's incredibly beautiful when it's in an attuning safe environment. Yeah. That's why and, therapy works. Yes. Yeah. And also like the reason why when we talk about these fear this fear circuitry and the idea mm-hmm. of the lack of attunement that we can get some quote unquote symptoms because we're generalizing our past worlds onto the present world. Yeah. It's a slippery slope to get into. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Neurobiological descriptions of childhood relational trauma. Next section. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there were a couple points that really stood out here to me. You know, the authors are now kind of full steam in their literature review process, synthesizing as they go. Um, but in that, you know, pulling out references from Siegel and Shore and Cosolino, like a lot of these neurobiology uh, kind of legends <laughs> mm-hmm. of what they're of how they're basing their understanding of childhood relational trauma, um, but that in that they're looking again at how over time in and after exposure to early relational trauma, what we're seeing is these physiological structures and processes perpetuate the augmentation that was a response to that early relational trauma. So these fear circuits and systems uh, perpetuate that response and Mm -hmm. further shape the physiological and psychological uh, development uh, moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I feel like I'm reading a lot of <laughs> um, sentences, but to me, the one of them that puts uh, like a, a check on what you just said is uh, living in fear distorts sensory perceptions and it gives rise to disproportionate atypical development in the parts of the right brain associated with decoding facial expressions and reading threatening cues. At the same time, there's underdevelopment of the parts of the right brain governing self-control the regulatory system becomes biased towards arousal in that, I mean, and again, I feel like I'm doing this just because I really want readers to like catch <laughs> the vibe that like we we're talking about children, but like you, if I, if you're 90 years old, you're a child still yes. like neurobiologically, there's no differentiation of like the adult brain and the child brain, except in, some, Time and specialization. Yeah, I was going to say, except in specialization, but you're still using the neural architecture and experiential templates yeah. of childhood mm-hmm. to make sense of your world. This reminds me of, um, are you familiar with, uh, this is an interesting application, are, are you familiar with the problem of putting sugar into a gas tank? No. Okay, so <laughs> okay. this was like, I don't, I've never heard of this in the present day, but my like my dad was uh like worried that people would do this to his vehicle mm. 
um, because people did it apparently, you know, 50 so, years ago. Okay. <laughs> and maybe they still do it now. I don't know. I'm just saying, I don't know anybody in the present that's talking about it, but it's something that my parents' generation, I seem to hear about a lot. Cool. Which is that if somebody, if you're mad at somebody, one of the ways to really like get back at them is to put sugar in their gas tank because it completely like destroys the engine. It's very difficult to like to fix this problem. Man, we're gonna have to contextualize this fear later. I'm gonna have a whole another set of <laughs> an anticipatory fear networks around somebody putting sugar in my <laughs> like vehicle. <laughs> so the reason you know that it that it messes everything up is that it binds with the chief accelerant, the gasoline, and creates now this uh, infectious disease for the vehicle <laughs> that gets in everywhere basically. Jeez. And so even if you were to like dump out all the gas and fill the gas tank back up, the problem is still there. And now it's perpetuating itself because it's in every system of the vehicle. Wow. So that to me is like the, a great example of how it doesn't matter that, you know, it, it doesn't matter so much that the sugar was put into the gas tank. It's mm -hmm. that it was then used mm -hmm. in later processes of the vehicle's functioning. Mm -hmm. That's really where it got bound into every crevice and nook and cranny and yeah. part of the vehicle. Yes. That even if you were to change the gas, you'd still have problems. Yeah, yeah. Unregulated affect yeah. is the sugar. That's right. And affect is such a core, it, it's the gasoline. Yeah, Literally from like a punk second yes. point of view, <laughs> yes. affect is the, the motivating source of human connection and yeah. getting needs met. And I love that because it, the affect regulation was in a moment. Mm. You know, the sugar was put into the gas tank in a moment. Mm. But then you carry that out as it's incorporated into the later functioning of that system. Mm. That's where the problem really is. Because now it's indistinguishable of what is the problem versus what is the developmental response to the problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like you should run to your dad and say, they found the answer for the sugar and the gasoline. And, but it's like, but not in like cars, but like for humans they <laughs> for did. For humans though. For humans we know that safe and secure relationships. This is a great, I'm, I'm sorry I'm gonna spin up once more <laughs> okay, actually. Yes. This is another amazing example of why it's important to be subjective in therapy because objectively there's nothing i can do about the gas tank yeah i can change the gas but the car's still done but because we're subjective beings complex even mm -hmm. ever further seeking complexity that means that your your system is responsive to the functioning of my system mm -hmm. and also responsive to the relationship that forms between us Beautiful. Your inner mechanic comes out and starts saying, like, I'll help. Mm -hmm. I'll start figuring stuff out because this is a way better scenario. This person's yeah. actually regulating our affect with us in its dynamics. Yes. So yeah, we can get rid of these old old parts. Let's rewire some things. Let's put, you know, different, you know, I'm losing track of the metaphor. But, but like, I mean it, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I but, love I do love the differentiation between the object car and the subject human. Yes. That's why there's hope. Mm. Two cars sitting next to each subjects. other couldn't do anything. Yeah. That car would just, you know, the healthy car would look at the gas sugar ridden car and just say, that sucks. Mm hmm. I gotta go. <laughs> Start up I'll and drive you. off. <laughs> You're gonna stay here. Yep. Forever. Mm. <laughs> That's a good, I love that metaphor. <laughs>
Also that we carried it out to like this graveyard rusty car experience. That's what happened. And provided a contrasting hopeful experience with humans. Yeah. Not to mention, I'm just telling you, (laughs) the sugar is a terrible thing for metal and gasoline. Yes. (laughs) It makes it rust way faster, apparently. Oh, my God. The metaphor gets better. From the inside out. From the inside out, which is literally humans. (laughs) literally (laughs) They didn't have that metaphor in the article. They did. But if we were going to suggest like another rendition. An edit. (laughs) I think... That, that would be a very good metaphor. <laughs> to metaphor. Let's actually write to because it's gonna be like you know. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate your case example, but <laughs> there's also a good metaphor for it. Just saying, <laughs> you ever heard of gasoline and sugar? <laughs> mm. Okay, next. So where section. do you want to go next? Uh, I want to go to the shattered attachment and multiple facets of loss, um, because one of the things that I think kind of connects back to something that we've already hinted at is that um, attachment strategies are filled with affective experience. And that if attachment theory through modern psychobiological sciences and interpersonal sciences have shifted to more regulation-oriented theories than they have just pure attachment Mm. theories, then when we when we look at how people respond to loss and trauma that it is it, it becomes paramount that we partner with the processing organism not not come down on or to speak about the human organism mm. so the what when i say that what i'm referring to also is that they use bulby's um in his uh, attachment and loss uh, books, he talks about the responses of a child to loss range from protest to despair and then to to detachment. Mm. And that these are strategies for coping with loss Mm. that need to be attuned to, not dismissed away. Mm. You don't need to tell the protesting child to stop protesting. They actually need to express that affect and to feel attuned to and regulated. You don't need to tell the despairing child and or person, adult, to, to stop despairing or to like, just like, you know, run its course. Right. Like that's when despair doesn't stop. Right. It keeps going. It's yeah. despair, feel attuned to and co-regulate. Yeah. The same thing with detachment. Like let let the person run amazing like two examples of that where the dismissive strategies are just like calm down that clearly doesn't work but similarly you know how in some uh anxiety protocols it's like the logical conclusion like well then what would happen well then the house would catch on fire okay then what would happen well the police would come okay then like it it takes them Mm -hmm. to the logical conclusion but that's where I think we're misunderstanding that it's not actually based in logic that the problem is found. Mm-mm. It's based in the intolerable affect in the absence of secure attunement. Yes. That is the trauma. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you take that all the way to its logical conclusion. The fear isn't actually in the matter of things. It's mm-hmm. in like the emotion. It's in the, the beingness, the togetherness. Yeah. And if that strategy does work, let's take it to the logical conclusion. 
it only works because the system somehow finds attachment and some sort of yeah. attunement in it. We did it together. Whether, we went to the logical conclusion. Yes. Or, yeah. Yeah. Together and or like in the imaginary experience, I still find mm -hmm. the attachment figure that I need yeah. at the end. Right. So, okay, my house burns down, but then I'm standing with my partner outside of the house. Okay. Well, that may be what the brain needs to see. Like, okay, we're still together. I'm still with my attachment. We have insurance. Yes. You know, yeah. whatever. <laughs> but it's yeah. not the logic of like, well, am I alive? Right. That, that doesn't matter. It's or the... It is the affect attunement yeah. in connection with others. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's pretty much <laughs> that section. Um, I do like the the last uh, quote that they say from Bowlby that is, um, Bowlby believes, quote unquote, defensive processes are a regular constituent of loss and mourning at every age, and that what characterizes characterizes pathology is not their occurrence, but the forms they take and especially the degree to which they are reversible. Human life, and I feel like we say this all the time in trans, is that we're not seeking that you could endure really shitty things mm -hmm. and be like a, a perfectly Zen monk. Mm -hmm. Actually, that's probably dissociative. Yes. Actually, not probably. It is, it is dissociative. Yeah, you'd literally have to be outside of the reality that is experiencing the threat. The lived embodied experience of the threat. What we're looking at as indicators of health, which is from attachment theory, a secure can we, attachment is, yes. can I express my affect, but then be soothed in the presence of a caregiving attachment figure? Yes. Specifically, um, a, a a trustworthy attachment figure, like yeah. not just anybody, yeah, but like a, a an other who is now emotionally present and attuned in a secure way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I love just like the humanizing quality of like protesting, despairing, and detaching. Mm -hmm. Those aren't qualities that are um, pathological, right? Those are it's very adaptive, everyday experience sense. and experiences that your body is using to mitigate threat. Mm -hmm. And they should be there. They need yeah. to be there. That's to me. It's why grieving matters. Mm -hmm. Why the process of grieving, and this is where they go into like the process of loss. It's important to go through those because then we're just the unending despair. If we don't, like the despair never finds a, an object or a subject to to latch onto. It just continues to go on unsoothed and unregulated. Mm -hmm. The process of grieving, and that's why in treating early relational attachment, that's such a big a big component what was unfound in the early attachment environment is being grieved in the system mm -hmm. perhaps it's covered over by years of numbing and you know anger or anxiety or whatever but at the base of it that's really what's there mm. is the absence of what evolutionarily their system knew should be there mm -hmm. my system is built to look to the developmental influence of an adult mm -hmm. and they weren't there yeah yeah, they they shift then and kind of the last little bit before they go into the case example of, so then in therapy, what happens, and specifically they're, they're referencing play therapy, is that the therapist provides a sense of proximity and a container for the release of these anxious, sympathetic feelings. Mm -hmm. And... This creates an internal model of security for the self 
as well as an internal framework of security of an other, mm. which is literally like what we're saying based on memory reconsolidation. It's changing the past. It's not changing the episodic memory of the loss of the caregiver, but it is changing the meaning that the nervous system is making about that event and how that continues to be re-hyphen-membered in the present over and mm -hmm. over again. You will create new activation patterns in association with yeah. that. Yeah, and their language becomes so simple sometimes, it's so beautiful. Not only is the loss an insult to the child's being, but also the very person towards whom it is natural to turn to for comfort is no longer available. Mm. So I love that language, that it's, it's not just that the loss was detrimental, it's that in the loss, what was actually lost was the one we're supposed to turn to, to mm. regulate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, That's where attachment finds its complexity. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. how does that, if that child lives on, how are they to make sense of their world? Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think we would say therapy is a space and also just other natural healing mm. in, in relationships. Mm -hmm. But specifically therapy for the focus of attention, like therapy is the space of finding a close enough, safe enough, caring space mm. to release the unfinished business. Yeah. The, the intolerable affect that had to be held, that activation that has to be quelled and, and, yeah. and unfinished. Yeah. In service of time, let's maybe just summarize what precedes the introduction of the case narrative. So it's play therapy. Uh, they're coming at it from this uh, neuropsychobiological perspective mm -hmm. and looking specifically for, in this example at least, Bowlby's uh, phases, um, being protest uh, and searching and despair, detach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the girl um, through... Elena uh, is three years old. Yes. Um, no presence of the caretaking mom. Well, act, and just for the context of the case, the mother is no longer able to care for Elena yep. and so is working with the therapist to transition the attachment from her to an yes. aunt. Yeah. And so the three-year-old being in their kind of sub-symbolic, pre-symbolic stage is really struggling with that, as mm -hmm. you would imagine. Yeah, um, biting in preschool... Uh, lots of outbursts, yes. lots of withdrawal behaviors. Yes, um, yeah. Do you want to just go through the kind of like the sessions? Say, like the sessions? Yeah, they, they give six sessions yeah. um, and kind of detail some explanation about the phase that they identify that they're in based on Bowlby's phases. Yeah. I love it. Yes. So do you want to, I don't know how to best do this. I would love to maybe even just read them. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Or Yeah. Yeah, I guess we could just read through all six sessions. And yeah, and then close. Okay. So session one, they label as phase one, protest, searching and yearning. Mm -hmm. They say, Elena met the therapist saying, quote unquote, I want to go to the playroom. Once inside, she chose two elephants, a small one and a large one that represented the child and mother. In protest, the little elephant repeatedly said to the big elephant, Mommy, where are you? Mommy, wake up. The child elephant often rode on the mother's back and imitating a familiar interaction the therapist had observed between Elena and her mother. Okay. So this outlining just that protesting experience of 
um, the protesting uh, response to loss in the child is this playing with two elephants saying, where are you, where are you? Yeah, like, I want to go back to the playroom being perhaps in her associative worldview that, well, in the playroom I can find mommy. Mm-hmm. Mommy, where are you? Yes. I want to be with you. Mm-hmm. And that in her system going to that space. Yeah. The protest of like, no, you should be here. Yeah. Where are you? Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mommy, wake up. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And imitating that in the, the toys. That's right. So, so, so beautiful. Yeah. Session two, still identified as phase one, protest, searching, and yearning. Elena eagerly greeted the therapist saying, is it my turn to go with you? Upon entering the playroom, she immediately searched for the same two elephants. With a deep level of absorption and, con- and concentration, Elena played out her anxieties and fears of her own loss and mother's well-being. Again in protest, the small elephant frequently said, Mommy, where are you? Mommy, wake up. Mommy, are you okay? Again, protest, still in that process of enacting her relationship with her own mother between these two elephant figures mm-hmm. and having this, you know, projective identification of herself in the baby elephant protesting the mother elephant yeah if i was going to um put this in more like clinical language for like from a affective neuroscience perspective like this is the system requiring a release of the affect of rage mm-hmm. saying like yeah i like I, that you said requiring because it's not it, yeah there it's not yet. Yeah, yeah yeah like the the system hasn't found its its full like attunement mm. in just the ability to say like this is not okay yeah. mommy where are you yeah are you okay wake up um, mm-hmm. yeah so then in session three which is another protest searching and yearning phase uh, session the authors say on this visit Elena asked to go into the therapist's office where she ran to the window to search for the mother. Each time a woman passed outside the window, Elena's eyes widened as she leaned closer to the window, calling, Mom, Mom, is that you? After several tries without anticipated results, Elena asked to go to the playroom where she played out themes of vulnerability and loss with the elephants. The little elephant strongly protested, Don't leave me, Mom. The mom replied, I have to go. Elena, working through the fact that the mom had to leave, expressed in in play her desire to belong to a family by placing a large zebra and a family of smaller elephants around the mother and child elephants. At this session, Elena found her own inventive solutions through the creation of new transitional phenomena that included a family of elements, which was carried over into the following week's play. Can we just, just for one second, talk about like how absurd it is, but also like, undervalued it is the uh, role of symbolic representation in affect that like this child is literally healing three years not because her situation is changing but because her brain is making sense of it in a way that is open to her affect and yes adaptive as far as letting her yeah, and I can. I wonder if the listeners are thinking about like, what did this? What's the therapist doing in this in this space? And it talks about it later that really the skill of the therapist is found in their ability to hold space for this process to unfold with a very attuned and responsive posture, but fairly open to the process. Mm-hmm. That 
you know, there's a deep trust in the psychoneurobiological processes that are unfolding. Mm-hmm. And that if we understand that this child is experiencing early relational trauma actively, their system is, you know, it's, it's in a, it's in a deep storm. Mm-hmm. And then what we're trying to be is a lighthouse. Yeah. For the adult client, it would be maybe what is the, what is the client attempting to work out by resisting you over and over and over again, mm-hmm. but keeps coming to therapy. Yeah. Why do they keep coming to a space where they can resist? Mm-hmm. And it's like, why are you paying money to just come and fight me? That might be a version of symbolic play that is so under the level of conscious awareness, yeah. but it's so important for their system to have the experience of being able to own that. Yes. That's and for you to hold space with them while con- they're doing yeah, it. Yeah, a container yeah. for that to totally be worked through, processed. Totally. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I love in this Elena's responses of don't leave me mom the mom replied I have to go Mm. you know in the narrative the daughter Elena is aware of what the mother is wanting for her to transition her attachment to the aunt but in that the protest prevails Mm. like she's playing it out in her play very just organically spontaneously but is struggling Mm. with that tension back and forth Mm -hmm. And then in that surrounding herself with a family that witnesses, that watches, mm-hmm. you know, setting up a family of elephants that's going to look in yeah. as we as we continue. Yeah. Logic just literally goes out the window. Oh like, my gosh. And well, it, if you know that the transition has to happen, why protest? Your your brain and your body don't, don't care. care. <laughs> yeah. It need it already has that pre-activation. Yes. So it, with it, the anticipation that this is supposed to I'm supposed to have her. Yes. Like, you know, they, they talked about earlier on in the in the article that her system says, like, no, that's my mom. Like, I'm supposed to have her mm-hmm. to regulate with. Yes. Yeah. And if not, like, if it's just the dismissed, like, you know, this has to happen without the protest being able to be expressed, the brain's going to plug away the template of, like, well, could plug away the template of if I would have just said something. Yeah things could have been different. Yeah. There's the unresolved. It really does show, yes, it really does show the, the dangerous poles. Either they said something and it meant nothing, or they said nothing and it meant everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Session four. <laughs> uh, still identify this is the last phase one. They're starting to turn the corner towards despair here. But at the start of this visit, Elena invited the therapist to join in on the play for the first time. The play consisted of the child and the mother elephants and a small calf positioned on the perimeter that Elena named the therapist. Taking charge of the play, Elena gave voice to the little elephant. Where's my mom? Followed with a calm voice. My mom is at the store. Seemingly tranquil from knowing the whereabouts of the mother, Elena surrounded the two elephants with a family of elephants and several dinosaurs. The play ended with a sense of Elena developing an internal representation of feeling contained by a new family of animals. In this session, she showed the beginnings of emerging reorganization to express feelings of protection. Elena, in this session, is beginning to build a support structure, which then permits her to safely express her anger at mom without fear of repercussion in session five. I love, I underlined that in this symbolic play, Mm -hmm. Elena is beginning to build a support structure, like Mm -hmm. both in the in the um, elements of the animals that are being organized in the play therapy room, but also 
neurobiologically. Yes. And I think like, to me, the beauty of therapy as well as like play therapy specifically is that there's no such thing as any experience divorced from your sensory motor networks. So then like you're literally building structures neurobiologically of support, of support yes. by giving yourself the sensory stimuli of dinosaurs being around these figures <laughs> and that that matters just as much to the brain as like just the thoughts of or more just yeah. the thoughts of like well i'm supported right and to me this is this is another example of the difference between how we conceptualize self-regulation which is actually internalized co-regulation as we mm -hmm. talk about it rather than auto-regulation where the child is forced in the absence of any regulation from any figure to you know make it yeah. <laughs> essentially make do within this elena is finding self-regulation through internalized co-regulation of sorting out her affective you know process mm -hmm. with the or within the space created by the therapist yeah yes that's what's becoming internalized because yeah. i think in some ways you could read this and say like oh she's pulling away like she's she's detaching and you know pulling away from any attachment resources of any kind because she now is like you know creating a small circle of of her own projective identification in mm. these elephants and zebras and dinosaurs but with the understanding psychoneurobiologically we see that well in the context again thinking back to evidence-based treatment in that context the client and the therapist are engaged co-creatively in making the space mm. about, you know, running through this affective process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then we get a shift session five into despair, failed attempts to restore the attachment figure. At the start of the visit, Elena, and this is again, follow in session four. So think of, you know, the building, the support in session four. At the start of session five, Elena asked to go into the therapist's office where she strongly protested several times. I want mommy to come here, followed by an abrupt request to go to the playroom. The therapist observed and could feel the child's intense arousal levels and expressed anger as she accompanied her to the playroom. Elena swiftly went for the elephants and aggressively started swatting and throwing blocks at them while saying, mommy, I want you. Mommy, where are you? Elena commanded the therapist to pick up the two, ele two elephants that she had thrown on the floor so that she could continue to hit them. When the therapist moved, Elena startled, startled and turned towards the door and a sad, despairing voice asked, Mom, is that you? Where are you? Where are you? Are you hurt? This transition from the, the aggressive protest, protest yeah. into this like collapsing despair. I think the the moment of like us even being in a space of not saying anything is I think our simulation systems mirroring mm. the posture of that session being like I'm not I like your system needs this just to just witness crazy in an affect avoidant culture to say your system needs this despair to heal. I'm thinking of all the moments that I've sat with people and this is sometimes I'll talk about it with clients like sitting on the edge of grief. 
Just sitting. And witnessing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just talking to another clinician this morning about like the power of speaking the unspeakable. Like just saying it. I love when we do trainings together because we walk away with like yeah. little <laughs> isms of each other. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Because the, the power of the unspeakable. Oh. Just mm. say it. Yeah. And then that. Even if just a whisper. Yes. And the, the ability to own the affect of that yeah. in a contained space that says, like, you've, ne- you've never had the safety to say it. And now you do. And to see the system heal in some way because it can own that. Yeah. Not because it can forget it, not because it can dissociate it, but right. because it can own that. Own it, yes. What do you think of her? I found this curious as I was first reading it. Mom, is that you? Where are you? Where are you? Are you hurt? Mm. What did you think about that ending? Mm. Are you hurt? My my immediate brain goes to like the projection of hurt mm. in like she's hurting. So she's wondering if mom's hurting. Mm. And I'm I'm just curious about that potential projection, but also maybe like her system is is running through potential stories that would yes. make sense of it. That's where my brain went immediately is that in her is some awareness of the offness of all of this. Mm. That something must be wrong. Mm-hmm. And she's cycling through is it me or is it mom? Is it me or is it mom? Is it me or is it mom? Mm. And that maybe in that, her, her sentiment was, you know, the sad, despairing voice. Are you hurt? Is that why you're not with me? Mm. Or why I can't be with you? Mm-hmm. Because you're hurt. Mm. Yeah. Because there's the rage coming out of attacking the elephants, making the therapist hold them back up so that she can mm. continue to beat them down. But that in that, she's asking if she's hurt. Mm. Which like makes me wonder if the therapist, they don't say it, but if the therapist did what we did, which is just to, there's no answer. Yeah. There's just silence and holding the affect. It makes me think that perhaps they did something like that because later on in the article, they talk about how every response was honest. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It says later on that when when Elena would ask, "Where's mom?" I'd say, "I don't, I don't know. I don't know." Mm. She wants you to connect, you know, with your aunt, and so she's left us here together to to sort that out. Mm. Yeah, not like, oh no, you know, trying to spin counter narratives of some kind around it, but just to be honest within the subjectivity of the therapist, saying like, "I, I don't know mm. where your mom is." Yeah, it's a it's a hard posture to hold. <laughs> yeah, you just want relief. <laughs> yeah, somewhere I think I think, but I don't know. I don't know. That yeah. reminds me of Stolero's like absolutisms. So. Oh yeah, you have to shatter those. Yep. Yeah. Well, so then the the sixth session goes into phase three, which is this detachment and this detached dissociation. So the succession started with Elena entering the playroom in a hyper-aroused state 
and right away searching for the small and large elephants in the family of elephants. Elena played out the themes of loss and vulnerability between the little and big elephants, while while the remaining family of elephants, elephants and the therapist were set up by her to witness the play. Elena repeatedly engaged in frenetic play, dropping and picking up the elephants while transferring her anger to the therapist and ordering her to stay far away at the other side of the room. In this session, Elena was displaying punishment and a punitive control strategy towards the therapist, often seen as angry and frightened strategies used by young children in a conflict-based relationship. Mm. During this visit, the therapist observed Elena go from a hyper-aroused state to a hypo-aroused dissociation and detachment, where she collapsed and placed her head on the floor, her body trembling. These involuntary responses generated repeated cycles of dysregulation across affective, behavioral, and somatic domains. The therapist contained and co-regulated Elena's distress by remaining present and aligning with Elena's emotional state. She created a quiet, quiet environment by lowering the lights, getting down on her knees, modeling nonverbal affective communication, and talking in a soft, soothing voice and offering comfort items when needed. In close context, Elena gained trust and was able to re-regulate her distressed state and ask for the therapist's help to play with the train set, which authored, offered further containment and holding. Once regulated and feeling supported, Elena could again protest and express her anger by repeating 10 more times in a demanding and angry tone, I want my mom, where's my mom, I want my mom. Mm-hmm. It was painful for the therapist to observe Elena reacting so strongly to the loss of her attachment figure and the expectation that her mother would be available in times of stress shattered. In this session, you see the risk of Elena in in an abyss state of mourning and the importance of the therapist through co-regulation and attunement to interrupt the neuronal system moderating her responses from becoming ingrained. The the clinical impressions then in the next session make a comment about the trains Hmm. um, that were mentioned at the end, that last paragraph. And uh, the authors say that the, the play um, prompted the therapist to comment, the train is attached like us. And at that moment, Elena's play revolved around being enclosed and firmly held in a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I don't know about you, my like I, even just reading that last like bit is my takeaway is like in if we're going to to treat trauma well we need to be open to the natural neurobiological processes that find healing mm. your body is made to heal and grow and find what it needs to keep going. Yeah. And I think those phases and the almost like the brutality of being in those spaces and being a container as a therapist, that just reminds me so much of like the thoughts aren't the problem, the experiences aren't the problem. It's can this human organism mm. have a safe container to process and go through its body's natural mechanisms to prevent what has happened from happening yeah. to eventually settle in co-regulation yeah. and a story that makes sense of what has happened. Yeah. As you were saying that, I 
recognized in me this sentiment that in working with trauma, I think we have to be really clear about why trauma is traumatic. Mm. And that's something when I'm working with consultees or students about how to understand somebody's behavior, you know, after going through so much, why was it traumatic? Mm. Like get your definitions out of your head of mm -hmm. what you think about why something is traumatic. Well, they think about it more often than not on these amount of days and it's in response to these affect and mm -hmm. whatever like DSM mm -hmm. language that you're looking at. Why to them was what happened traumatic? And I think within that, you're paying attention to the very structures that you're talking about. You're looking at, oh, their system was in development of these processes contingent on this degree of safety with these individuals. And that was challenged, if not completely shattered. Mm -hmm. And so within that, their system had to, had to react, had to adapt. Mm -hmm. And so just as it said in the conclusion of that sentiment that what the therapist was doing was trying to keep those processes from becoming ingrained yeah. by offering a mismatched experience that in the face of this overwhelming affect, she began to shut down. And instead of the therapist just letting her shut down and waiting for her to come back, turned down the lights, you know, changed the environment to be honoring of that shutdown and, and approached. Yeah. And pursued soft, intimate co-regulation. Yeah. I the, think of like the, the flow chart of activation connection release mm -hmm. versus activation inhibition and ingrained yeah, behavior yeah, yeah. like we want we like in in working from a posture that is connected to what we know of modern neuroscience we want activation connection release mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we don't want that system to feel like it has to ingrain the strategy to prevent further losses and, and become over-reliant. Yeah. Hmm. It's an interesting end, mm. uh, especially in kind of sitting, like I feel us feeling the affect of the session kind of markup mm -hmm. um, and kind of being in a space of like, what the? Yeah. What the heck? That would be hard therapy. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, but hard. But hard. Because it, it really stretched their affect range. Mm -hmm. You know, they experienced so much together. Mm -hmm. And that is tiring. Like our system is built to do it, but it costs. Like it takes, mm -hmm. it, it has weight. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I know it's my own biases and my own perspective coming into mourn the moments that so many don't get in a caregiver environment like that with mm -hmm. the therapist you know to think of the versions of treatment that elena could have been put through mm. and how augmenting it could have been perpetuating mm. the ingrained nature of those mm -hmm. self-regulation strategies yeah And I, you know, I know you as well, but for me working with, for me working with um, adopted individuals or people who have been in the, you know, adoption system or the foster system, 
I see this so often. Mm. I feel like what I'm trying to do so often is to help them unlearn some of the experiences that have shaped them yeah. in and out of care and the system, then back to their, you know, home life that was then, you know, shattered. So they had to go back into the system and you see this over and over and over again. Um, and that what I'm longing for is just enough time in a moment to connect like that, like Elena's mm-hmm. therapist was with her. It takes so much time. Mm-hmm. Some it feels like, you know, mm-hmm. in this narrative it was six sessions, but sometimes it takes years. Yeah. And I can get you symptom relief. And you know, I feel like that's one of the <laughs> another hallmark of this <laughs> podcast is like mm. we can get symptom relief. Yeah. But that's not the goal. Yeah. Symptoms are communication. What are they saying? Where are they from? Yeah. Do you want transformative change? Because that's different. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the symptoms will transfer. Yeah. And yeah, you can find uh, you can find healthier ways of producing a symptom. Yeah. You eat healthy food instead of junk food or something like, and that makes you feel better to some degree. Like that's great. Right. But at the same time, like, I don't want you to have to carry around the weight, even the weight of healthy food. Right. <laughs> like, yeah. or a healthy coping strategy of any right. kind. Right. Like, right. like, transformational change is for you to not have to carry it mm-hmm. and be over-reliant on that yeah. strategy. Um, sometimes I'll talk about, like, uh, for clients, like, the difference between a desire-based motivation and a shame-based or stress-based motivation and just like feeling the heaviness of like, I can get you to a different shame-based motivation that's going to like be aimed in a different, or I can use the same shame-based motivation to get you aimed at a different target, but it's still gonna be shame-based and you're still gonna feel the weight of it. Yep. Even if you're doing the good thing, you'll feel great for probably a couple of years, but then yeah, the, the weight will reemerge. Yeah, even in sessions where I'm struggling to feel motivated, Okay, like, let's talk about why. And oh, you know, I found this new uh, like goal setting workbook and it changed my life. I feel great. Three weeks later, back off. Yeah. <laughs> Fell back off. Mm-hmm. Well, you didn't change the, the mechanism. Mm-hmm. You just changed what the mechanism was eating. Yeah. 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 And I think like one of the things that's coming up in, in just my gut right now and thinking of EBTs is the idea of like if that. If that's the type of therapy you're doing, like some DBT workbooks or some CBT workbooks or solution you know, focused, whatever. solution focused, yeah, yeah. And that's you're getting results that the clients are feeling great about, like okay, awesome. Like if they want to go the step further and you feel comfortable doing that, like advocating for that, hundred percent. I think also like this nuance to EBT is for not only for those people who get mm-hmm. symptom reduction but continue to carry on the weight mm-hmm. of these shame-based strategies, but I also think it's for the people who, like, we don't really talk about in the uh, RCT trials that are, like, the 20 to 40% who are not getting relief from any modality. Mm-hmm. Like, those are real humans. So many and real humans. <laughs> these nuances are, are taking us away from 
making objective labels mm-hmm. not good not fit for emdr not fit for cbt treatment not, resistant, treatment resistant mm-hmm. requires management strategies only like all of these objectifications to saying maybe we're tapping into deeper circuits of affect that are finding ways to express themselves and they just need a safe container you're not treatment resistant you're processing yes <laughs> and that's an, a very important distinction and necessary for therapists one, to not burn out, and two, to actually like conceptualize therapy mm. in a helpful way. Mm. Um, yeah. One of the places we'll turn then in the next, in the summer months of EBT and probably into like some of the fall yeah. is um, understanding the neuroscientific underpinnings of some of these ideas of unconscious levels of meaning Mm. and organization of strategies and things like fear understanding the systems of fear that modulate our behaviors and even our thinking Mm. before we're consciously aware of it Mm. and that's happening for you as a clinician and the client yeah and so understanding some of these um kind of more pragmatic elements of humans the biology of us helps us then to avoid some of these objectifying labels and make sense of, the of left brain. yeah <laughs> like, and make yeah. sense of some of these frustrating experiences in mm. therapy where my ebt my standard protocol is not working mm-hmm. yeah and that's in the name of what this article labeled as the the integrated approach the psychoneurobiological mm-hmm. approach you know we're not yeah. just going to talk about biology to talk about biology we're talking about it because it seems to be the underlying origin mm-hmm. of these psychosomatic or psychological uh, disorders and symptoms. Yeah. So press on. Read on, fellow <laughs> researchers. EBT. EBTers. EBTers, yeah. <laughs> uh, but thank you so much for listening and uh, stay tuned and we'll, uh, we'll keep on reading. Yeah. Reach out. Say hello. Tell us what you're reading. We'd love to hear. Love or to what hear. we should read. There you maybe. go. What you're interested like in, curious about. recommendations, I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe so. <laughs> maybe so. All right. Thanks, guys. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice That is an EMDR podcast hosted by EMDR-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection.
The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear.